This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. I am Flick Ford and joining me in the studio is my guest for tonight, film reviewer Will Cox. Hey Will. G'day Flick, how are you doing? I'm good. Sweaty, but I'm yeah, good. Yeah, 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 same. I had to change shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get into a radio shirt, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the measures we go to to uh, stay... Appear professional. <laughs> We actually could get away with it where, you know, it's the benefits of radio. Yeah, but then we tell everybody in the first minute on air how disgustingly sweaty we are. I feel like I'm glad that we're starting with a discussion about bodily fluids for our (laughs) very first primal screen for 2022. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne and Carl Chapman for last week's warm-up show and to Eloise Ross and Rowan Strong, who covered the summer break in our absence. Uh, it was very nice having a little break, but I'm also excited to get back in the studio because um, I've actually seen, more so just this week or the last fortnight, I've seen quite a few films. Uh, how about you, Will? Have you been back in the cinema? I've been back to the cinema a little bit, but um, there's a plague happening and I've just been, <laughs> I've been sort of avoiding it. Uh, so I've seen a few things, but not as many as I'd like. And I've been seeing, watching a lot of, uh, strange old 70s horror films at home because <laughs> they're accessible, you know, because yeah. uh, I have copies of them. But no, I haven't seen as much as I'd like. Um, but there's a couple of things I think we'll probably talk about later. As we are. As, yeah, so for yeah. Tonight's, no, tonight's show, we're going to do a bit of a recap of sorts of what we've been watching over summer. We'll be talking about Pablo Lorraine's Princess Die biopic, Spencer. Uh, we'll also be talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. And we'll finish up with Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, The Lost Daughter. Um, yeah, it's been lovely getting back into the cinema. And I also... Um, I've also kind of paired two of my great loves last night with live music and going into the cinema for Hear My Eyes, which is also back um, for pe- for listeners who aren't aware of Hear My Eyes. Basically, the the deal is it's a film screening with a live score by a band. And last night's score was by the Murlocs at the Astor for um, Two Hands, which I hadn't seen since it came out, I don't think. No, I was actually kind of looking forward to going to this one, but I couldn't go in the end. But, uh, but yeah, uh, Two Hands is not something I've seen for 20 years. Yeah. Plus, it, I think. It, yeah, it would be around yeah. that for me. I, it definitely holds up. It's actually a lot more funny than I remember. It yep. was a good one to return to. I just love the pairing of um, playing around with with kind of recreating the film through the score. One of my favourites that they've done is There Will Be Bud, where they got um, uh, Tropical Fuckstorm to do a live score of that. No, no. Um, no oh, No Country for Old no Men. No Country for Old Men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Getting confused. Excuse me, I think you'll find. <laughs> oh, no, dear. that was that was yes. extremely good. Yeah. That was that was that great. Was amazing. I mean, I've seen I think most of them and they've all been really yeah. great. Yeah. And so yeah, it's just good to be back and yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to, to getting into some film chat with you. So let's get started. The first film we're gonna be looking at tonight is uh Pablo Lorraine's 
rather artful um, biopic of Princess Diana Spencer. And it's, it's kind of – the film plays out over three days from Christmas Eve to Boxing Day and it presents this emotionally exhausted Diana and she's – you know, she goes from being quite fierce in some scenes but she's also very fragile and deeply wary of the, of the royal family and everyone who serves them. Um, her marriage to Charles is still intact enough for family photos for the press – but inside the palace walls, it's marked by infidelity and distrust and they're very much on the cusp of divorce. Yesterday, you arrived after the Queen. I got lost. Oh, how could you get lost? You've lived over the hill for years. It looks different now. Everything looks different. You're sure you went late yesterday because you were delayed by someone? Why would you think I got delayed by someone? Oh, come on, come on. They are circling us. Didn't you know? Don't you read? It seems they're circling just me. Not you. Just me. The thing is, Diana, there has to be two of you. You know, there's, there's two of me, there's two of father, two of everyone. There's the real one and the one they take pictures of. You have to be able to make your body do things you hate? That you hate? Yes. For the good of the country. For the country? Yes, the people. Because they don't want us to be people. I'm sorry, I thought you... That was uh, Christian Stewart as Princess Diana, bristling at Prince Charles, who in, uh, is played by Jack Farthing. Um, and he's insisting that there must always be two selves, a private and a public one. And this is, of course, a topic that seems to have dogged Pr Princess Diana throughout her life. Um, she's, of course, um, a really fascinating subject matter and there have been so many screen adaptations of her life. Um, best known is probably Diana from 2013 with Naomi Watts. I'm not sure if you saw that one. No, no. <laughs> I'm not much of a uh, royal family fan, so I haven't watched any of these. But I did do a bit of a dive. The, the first one was um, Princess in Love from 1996. Um, more recently, Elizabeth Debicki has played Diana in the Netflix series The Crown. Um, there's also been a few TV specials. Um, starting with Charles and Diana, a royal love story from 1982. I'm sure it's very good. <laughs> yeah, I almost am tempted to go back and watch those. Uh, we've also got Whatever Love Means, which is from a quote that Diana um, said. In a, no, no in Charles said that. Yeah. Oh, I, was I'm going to well actually oh, you yet again. <laughs> Charles said that in an interview, what I was think. It? I thought it was yeah, Diana. It's just like, oh, I don't know. Maybe you're right. We'll, we'll, I, look, it's, we'll Google it's it. It's happening in, in Charles's voice in my head. Oh. Well, whatever love means. <laughs> Wow, you romantic. Yeah, well, that was from 2005. We've also got 2007, there was Diana, Last Days of a Princess, which has all this archival footage but also some really dodgy uh, reenactments. Um, <laughs> there was a Broadway, Broadway musical which was um, actually streamed on Netflix last year. Um, apparently that one kind of tips into comedy and not intentionally. Right, I'm sure it's very tastefully done. <laughs> I, think, I think when I saw this coming out and I saw, you know, maybe a trailer for it and I thought, okay, well, that I'd, you know, I don't need to watch that. That's fine. I'll just let yeah, that be. But yeah. I'm so glad that I 
that I did. I think the first exposure that I had to it was the score, the Johnny Greenwood score, um, which just knocked me out. It's mm. so good. And it's it's this strange, disquieting kind of, uh, you know, stringy jazz mm. that I think I, I thought what could possibly – what. Could this possibly have to do with Princess Diana? I should see this film purely. It's, I just realised what happens there. Yeah. We've we've inadvertently done a Greenwood double. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not hard at the moment. No, he's got a lot going on. It's very, and he's much more active in this than he is in Licorice Pizza. He's more sort of incidental in that. But here, I think it's it's just one of the best things about the film. Yeah, and I was tempted to actually include part of it, but I think it plays so much with the visual aspect that I was sort of like, I think it's probably best experienced mm. in the film just by itself. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, how, what are your thoughts on Pablo Lorraine? Because he, most most listeners will know him from his dance drama Emma, which we actually reviewed because um, it played at MIFF uh, back in 2019. Um, he also has another biopic, Jackie, which came out in 2016 with Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy. Um, and like Diana, kind of another fashion um, icon. So he's kind mm. of drawn to this. And I feel like Lorraine's strength as a director really lies in the visual storytelling. Mm. And mm-hmm. there is so much attention to detail. And I, you do see all of these iconic fashion um, moments for Diane that were so caught up in these key, um, really quite sad stages of the end end stages of a marriage mm. um, that is being captured by the by the press. Yeah, I think what really excited me about it, so I didn't know much about it going in as I've said, mm. but, but what really excited me about it was that it's not a biopic as such, like in the traditional sense of uh, you know, going through a person's life for um, uh, several decades. Uh, it, it's focused on i think three days yeah three three days so from christmas eve to boxing day of, of, as... of diana in uh in the palace just slowly unraveling mm. and trying to uh uh survive in the kind of stifling family atmosphere what, yeah what did you think because it's a it's a very i suppose when you're pre- depicting a character who's so well known a real life person who has had every inch of their life documented in the press. There's a a lot of uh, pressure on making that into a film adaptation and and the performance of that. What did you think of Case Drew in the lead role as as Diana? I loved her. I thought she was great. I mean, it's not quite – it's not the real Diana because, like, it's about how there's a – you know, there's the public Diana and there's the private Diana and this is a kind of – it's a version of the public Diana that is – reflecting the private, you know, mm. it's it's never going to be entirely her. But I think she's so good in it because she's usually quite muted, I think. She and is, but quite... that's, yeah, that's kind of part of her charm sometimes. Yeah. Like in Clouds of Sils Maria, she, that's her restraint or Personal Shopper is another great example where her restraint is, is precisely the storyline. Mm. But I think this is really bold. I think she could have got away with posh and austere, you know, but she does this incredibly breathy, frightened sort of take on Diana. It's a bit Marilyn Monroe in The Misfits, you know. It's a <laughs> yeah. bit – she's scared. I'm, she's... Yeah, I'm still on the fence about the performance. I agree with you that there's some moments that she really nails it and I, um, particularly when she answers back, I think we see a bit more of that defiance and I think that's where Stuart is is really believable. Mm. Um 
I did feel as though some of the narrative focused a bit too much, like kept her too much in this frightened space. And because, like we said, it's set over three days, there's maybe the, some restrictions there about how much they can show of her. Mm. Um, one of my my favourite scenes was that one that we played, which has um, Diana um, coming up to, to Charles. And there's several moments throughout the film where she, where she sort of gestures towards an intimacy with him, either with asking him to compliment her or... Mm. And he and he makes some um, barb about her um, throwing up because you know Diana famously had yeah. bulimia and yeah the, the film touches upon those more perhaps well known but um, more uncomfortable truths about Diana. It at least indicates in that scene that they have some kind of relationship or they mm. have had some kind of relationship because the rest of it's steely silence between the two of them. But mm. um, I. I loved her. It's quite camp at times, her performance. I think it's probably going to be remembered more for the campiness. But <laughs> I thought she was fantastic. She's, it's yeah. quite overwrought. It's not really a, a naturalistic performance, which is quite yeah. bold for a film like this. I think. Yeah. And, and I suppose that gets uh, communicated in the, the cinematography as well. I, I actually, I suppose my criticism, but also my criticism of Spencer is that Lorraine seems more interested in presenting this as it almost could be a, uh, a fashion edit um, with these beautiful, beautiful cinematography and the lighting in this film and the attention to detail. All of that is spectacular. But similar to his film Emma from 2019, I'm not sure that there was enough anchoring it down. And if you like that style, I think you'll love Spencer. I just – I suppose that um, – yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not completely swept up by this. One. I disagree with you there because I think that it's um, it, it is this sort of fashion show, and it's beautiful to look at. But mm. you never forget that there's a woman just stuck somewhere in the middle of that, and she doesn't get a chance yeah. to, you know, she she can't breathe. Yeah, oh, that that is communicated well. I just didn't think that there was. Um, what am I trying to say? I don't. I I feel like. She just kept a bit one note. Mm. And so I mean more so not that there isn't depth to the representation but that it just stayed in that one space. And I think over the three days they could have actually created um, a bit more movement with the structure of it. Mm. Um, I do like the ending and I loved that it was had this sense of liberation which because we all know how Diana um, Diana's life ended mm. in, uh, what was it, 1997 that she died. And that being such a global event of sorts. So I kind of love that the film just doesn't even need to go near that, really. There's there's kind of, we all know it so well. And I've heard some people refer to it as a horror. Yeah, <laughs> There absolutely. is a sense of that, yeah. isn't there? Well, it feels like, I mean, Sandringham Palace, is that the yeah, palace? That yeah. yeah, yeah. And it feels like a haunted house, mm. you know. And there's, mm. there's quite a lot of... Um, a doubting of her sanity and questioning yes. of reality. Yes. So that you know there are ghosts and there are uh, strange, unreal moments, uncanny moments. Mm. It's really quite horrorish. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that much about Princess Di, but I listened to this podcast. Um, You're wrong about, and there's a wonderful. They do a wonderful uh, five part series on on Diana and it, it gives a lot of depth um, to some of the stories and narratives that have since changed like the relationship with um, Charles and Camilla and how that was presented in the press and yeah it's just a, she's a really fascinating historical figure so I don't know what it is about her that people just latched onto you know well she kind of was the first celebrity of sorts to actually have this humanitarian um, public 
performance of you know, mm. it's not performance because she actually did go along to these hospitals and she did do a huge amount of work. But she was really the first kind of royal member to kind of go to that those lengths and to make that part of her duty because mm. um, often she you know from I'm saying it as though I know this person but from what I understand about her um, memoirs and things like um, the biographies written about her they they talk about how that's how she felt she actually felt more at home there and she was actually doing something and mm. you know there's lots of um I don't know, it's a bit too um, too much to unpack that, but she's fascinating in that sense, like that idea of using your fame to to help out and, and to actually do quite a lot of good. And mm. there's a beautiful photography um, photograph of Diana where she's um, holding, I think she's in an AIDS hospital and just that kind of, you know, you think about the AIDS crisis and that, that sense of shame and this, this the way in which there was just so much bound up in that and for her as this public figure and very like prim you know very you know to to go into those hospitals and and to actually listen to these people's mm. stories was is huge both at the time and i think still now okay well, that's probably why they, <laughs> that's why they loved her will <laughs> that's why the people loved her and the royal family were yeah. a bit miffed about her yeah that sums it up no but i actually <laughs> loved this and i'm perplexed that other people don't oh, <laughs> I, 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 I just want to clarify i didn't not like it i think i just didn't love it as much as unlike you I, when i when i heard about it i was just like i want to say i feel like i'm going to love this and i didn't love it as as much as I thought I would. Right. Yes, clarify. I loved it a lot more. <laughs> I thought it could have it could have gone either way. I thought, oh yeah, this will be all right. But it's, no, I absolutely loved it. Expectations. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. The next film we're going to chat about, and this is a film that's been getting. A lot of buzz. Um, we're only 31 days into the year and this film has been listed on a few best film of the year lists. Yeah. <laughs> Will's looking at me shocked. I double-checked my facts. I've done my research. This it's year? True. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Isn't I mean, it? yeah, sure. But... <laughs> Calling it early. Um, uh, let's, let's dig into it. I've got a little clip that I think we might as well start with um, just to give you a taster. What are your plans? I don't know. What's your future look like? I don't know. How do you like working at Tiny Toes? I hate working at Tiny Toes. You should start your own business. (laughs) What business should I be in? I don't know. What do you like? I don't know. You're an actress. You should be an actress. So how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. It's my calling. I don't know how to do anything else. It's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance man. Come on. Ever since you were a kid. Song and dance man. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does in my public relations company. In your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent too. Well, no, I'm not a secret agent. That's funny. <laughs> ever since he's been, a, ever since he was a kid, he's been a song and dance man. Uh, so the Licorice Pizza is the latest film from Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Phantom Thread, and many others. All of them are very good. It's a '70s set comedy drama about an unconventional age gap relationship. 
in California in 1973. Alana, played by Alana Haim, is a kind of lost 25-year-old who still lives with her parents and bounces between jobs. And then she meets Gary, played by Cooper Hoffman, a charismatic 15-year-old child actor with many business side hustles and an abundance of confidence. His crush on her fuels an odd couple romantic friendship, uh, and it's very funny throughout. What did you, <laughs> what did you think of this week? Um, I, yeah, I saw this the other night. It was actually my first first cinema trip back in, in like, yeah, since I... Since the pandemic uh, really, really properly kicked off. Since that really finished, yeah, that really wrapped yeah. up. We can get back to the cinema. It's all over. Um, yeah, no, I, I feel like this was a perfect one to see the cinema. Um, Johnny Greenwood again mm. doing the score. Mm-hmm. It's also like P.T. Anderson. I love P.T. Anderson. He has done. He's just got. He knows how to play music in a film. He just gets how it works, <laughs> for want of a better phrase. He's directed a whole heap of Haim video clips as well as um, you would have seen Tom York's uh, short musical film Anima. Um, he's done lots of work with Fiona Apple and uh, Joanne Newsom. Um, so Anderson and, and music for me are just a perfectly tied. So it was wonderful seeing this in the cinema and just sinking into this beautiful reconstruction of a particular time. There's a huge amount of nostalgia in mm. this film. Um, I do have some criticisms, but let's um, – yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on on P.T. Anderson before we kick off? You're, you're a big fan as well? I really like it, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I think some of his earlier films I could sort of see the joins, you know. Like I love Boogie <laughs> Nights, mm. but some – like Magnolia I'm not a, not a huge fan of. I, I love bits of it, but it's overly long. Mm. But then I think – his last few have just been fantastic, like uh, Phantom Thread oh, was just a yeah. highlight of whatever year that came out. Yeah, in. absolutely. What, what year was it? I've no idea. Twenty eighteen. I'm not sure anymore. Time 17? has become a, a very loose flat circle. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, this is obviously a, a very nostalgic thing for him, mm. and I think he's cast um, a lot of friends. Well, um, the, the, the yeah. two leads aren't act well. They've never really acted in a film before, I don't think. Well, it's interesting, yeah. Like, so Cooper Hoffman as as Gary Valentine is is really interesting casting because Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, um, has appeared in five of Anderson's films, um, and and now we kind of see yeah Cooper in this role. And I wasn't, I thought he was. He was really believable. Um, mm. He kind of won me over a bit as the the performance played on. Like, mm. it's an interesting character. Um, Alana Haim is exceptional. I think that the casting in this is really fascinating. She has so much, uh, such a natural presence on screen and her entire family actually yeah. appears in the film, yeah. uh, which adds, of course, an- another level of, of naturalism. So they're all close personal friends of Anderson. Yeah. So this is a bit of a family, you know, yeah. get together. Yeah. But I, I love that the car, the two leads aren't Hollywood hot, you know, and they're not, they're charismatic, but they're not beautiful. No. Which just makes such a difference because you just don't see that in a in a big studio film. Absolutely. I mean every other film currently in the cinema, I haven't done the numbers on this, but I think it's every other film has little Timothy Chalamet in it. And I <laughs> you know, I can see him being in this role, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as uh as charismatic as well, uh, Yeah. I suppose it's a film about outsiders, right? Mm. Like that and that's what Anderson works so well with. Mm. Um and yeah, these two characters, like Gary and Alana, they they kind of are, are brought together and 
there is a there's what a ten year age gap, and and that age gap has caused a bit of criticism from people saying, you know, why you know we it'd be okay if there wasn't any sexual. Um, you know, chemistry between the two or, you know, that would be okay if they're just friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, there has been criticism about the age gap, which is interesting because I don't – I wonder whether that would have been brought um, – would would have been an issue should that have been swept – the roles would have been swapped around. I mean, the power dynamic between them is, is kind of interesting. Um, Alana is sort of – as a character, she's stuck in a kind of almost an arrested development. You know, she she works at <laughs> what was it called? Toppy toes, tiny toes, tiny toes. Yeah, anyway. is that what it was? Um, Which is a photography, a, a, a school photography business. Yeah, and it's obviously not her calling. And so her her trajectory is actually really fascinating through this. Um, I actually love with the time that it's set the way in which there's these little moments in which um, men either touch her where she doesn't want them to um, or they comment on her um, her nose or and actually lots, and, and a woman does that. But it's just interesting. She's making her way through as this young woman and there's lots of um, sexism that she comes mm. up against and misogyny and it, the film includes that. Um, another part of what the film includes is some casual racism. Um, some should absolutely we bizarre that? casual racism. Yeah. I, I, what you were saying before about the men that she encounters are all seedy, drunk, high, immature, you mm. know, racist, sexist, and a big brash racist in the middle of that going completely unchallenged, I, I guess is part of the landscape. But it's made a lot of people quite uncomfortable. Yeah. Which I think is it's intended to do. Well, but... Anderson has responded by saying you know, that was part of this racism was part of that time and it well continues to be part of this time. I, I don't but I think that that's a bit of a lazy excuse. If you if you're gonna put that into a film, I think you need to do the work um and, and kind of do something with it because the character basically to to describe the scene for for listeners who haven't seen Licorice Pizza, um a character who has a Japanese wife um, puts on a mock Japanese accent to talk to her. And it occurs in two scenes. So it takes up two whole scenes mm-hmm. in this film. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's just a bit of a – it's a lazy joke. Um, it, it is a lazy joke. It doesn't really joke. do anything for the plot at all. It is a lazy joke and it does nothing for the plot. He's doing it to belittle his wife yeah. essentially. But then um, – look, I'm going to spoil the joke in the – purpose of analysing this, right? <laughs> the second scene, set some months later, he's got a different Japanese wife because yeah. the first one obviously isn't putting up with any of that, right? But yeah, it's it's really strange. I mean, obviously, neither of us have got skin in the game, so we're not maybe whatever we say doesn't quite no, uh, I think, add yeah. up too much. But. I suppose, like, I just would like to say that the, the representation of Japanese women as being demure and we see that again in this film and yep. I don't think they do anything interesting with it yep. and I don't know why those jokes are in there. It's an, it's an odd target. <laughs> yeah. It's an odd yeah. target if you're going to uh, sort of depict racism like that. It's done in a very odd and uncomfortable way. Mm. Uh, I think an alternative would be getting too moralistic about it. So I think maybe he was sort of grappling with um, trying not to get too moralistic and too earnest about it and not to outwardly condemn it because we can all make our own decisions because mm. we're all grown-ups, but it, it doesn't work in context. It doesn't mm. work at all. But it, it's um, it, it's not the only thing that would... I mean, obviously the age gap, I think, between a mm. 15-year-old boy and a 25-year-old woman 
probably makes a lot of people uncomfortable, as you yeah, said. But, yeah, that's but, come up. And and there's a moment as well with them. Um, what did you? I, I'm curious to think what you thought of the relationship because there's a scene that made me feel a bit uncomfortable in which Alana is passed out and um, he um, Gary reaches over as if to mm. um, touch her while yeah, well, she's it's, unconscious. It's, I'm sorry, but it's an extremely realistic depiction of, yeah, a, of how yeah. a 15-year-old boy would react to that. And I think it's made to... Again, made to make us feel a bit of discomfort. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and their relationship, I think, is very real. You know, because she's a bit lost, and he's over, he's got an abundance of confidence. Mm. And uh, it, they find this odd space in the middle. She's basically being in love with this fifteen-year-old boy. She acknowledges, yeah, it is a bit weird. Mm, she and has that great frankly, line. <laughs> she's embarrassing herself. Yeah, you know, like yeah. Uh, you know, with getting embroiled in this bizarre thing. But have you ever? <laughs> I mean. Maybe I'm showing my whole ass here on the radio, but have you ever been infatuated with someone to the point that you realise later on that you are a huge embarrassment to everybody around you? Uh, <laughs> don't know if I want to answer that well, on air, right, Will. Well, neither have I. So um, I, I, I really loved how honest that was. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There's a lot of char- – you know what? The criticisms aside, there is a lot of charm to this film and there's a lot of charm to Gary Valentine and Alana. Yeah. I, I probably liked her character more. I think she has more to work with. Yeah. And there's lots of just really interesting things. And it brings in, you know, the gas crisis. Yeah. And I, I kind of love that this film kind of deals with historical events and really key – social and, and political changes in this real lightness. There's mm. a lovely glow, nostalgic glow mm. to this film. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I don't think anybody's intended to be a beacon of morality in this film, you know. So no, we, we can no. criticise the characters and that's fine. You know, it's not a, this isn't a Marvel film. You know, we don't all have to uh, have to applaud everybody for making the right decisions at the end because, you know, people don't. It's a... It's a drama. It's an actual it's, film. It's know? definitely – and it's definitely Anderson's messiest film. It, the the structure of it is really In, loose. Yeah, yeah, and, very playfully loose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder whether people who really love Anderson's um, work like Phantom Thread or There Will Be Blood may not enjoy this as much because – you know, for some, the pleasure comes in that precision. Mm. And this feels like perhaps a film where it's almost a return to his youth and a real celebration, like yeah. you said. Well, I said um, that I, I didn't like Magnolia as much because it was so loose and long, but mm. I love the fact that this is loose. <laughs> uh, and there's definitely moments in Boogie Nights where he's clearly the cast of mm. riffing and he's just left it in. I think he encouraged that on the set. But, yeah, this does have a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of that in it. It's got a lot in common with those earlier films. Mm. And this is, uh, what would it be, the fourth or fifth film that he's worked with Johnny Greenwood? I can't remember the exact... Something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Well, yeah, why I not? I mean... Fifth. It's the fifth, yeah. There Will Be Blood, The Master, Inherent Vice, yeah. Phantom Thread. But yeah. Johnny Greenwood's far more sort of incidental in here. He's just mm, sort of he in is. the background and the, yeah. big, the biggest musical. Like, you'd be forgiven for not noticing... His, yeah, his score. and and the licorice pizza, the the piece that he does um, create for this is it's really delicate. Mm. It's a really um, understated piece. Um, I actually didn't know where the phrase licorice pizza came from, so I had to look it up. It's a record store. Did you know that? Yeah, but in yeah in in the California region that yeah. presumably he used to frequent, yeah, know, or remembers <laughs> from when he was a kid. It's such an evocative title, isn't it? I I do. Um, yeah, I thought there's a lot of charm to that, and it, it really is a love letter to music. Um, yeah, it, it's impossible to talk about this film and, and not talk about the music in it. 
And well, yeah, and to just Hollywood uh, in general of that period, that kind of the way music, where music and uh, music and film kind of collided. There's a lot of real Hollywood figures mm. that turn up in this. Like Bradley Cooper plays a cocaine fueled parody of. John Peters, who's a real <laughs> film producer. Apparently Peters Peters gave him the they were like, Yeah, go for it. I don't care how you represent me. So they got full blessing for that portrayal. That's actually a wonderfully um ridiculous scene. I, it, similar, you know, back to that point about this being a very loose film. I'm not sure what narrative purpose it serves, but it's kind of an interesting side story. I yeah, suppose. I mean, this is all. These are all kind of. It's kind of um, episodic, you know. Mm, and this is just another yeah. foil for the two of them to yeah. overcome. I have to say, I wasn't completely um, sold on their relationship. Um, I uh, didn't kind of understand why Alana would continually return back to Gary, I have to say. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's was... perfect though, isn't it? I'm like, what? <laughs> what I, is she doing? You know, but, you know, yeah. of course she is. And it's quite, that's quite real, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, like I said, just absolutely embarrassing herself time after time. <laughs> Why is she still hanging around this 15-year-old boy? Please don't, you know, please just grow up. But um, no, I, I think that that was a really honest depiction of that kind of infatuation. Mm. And it's messy and it's horrible. Um, and, um, yeah, that age gap is, uh, it's funny. It's something very seventies about it because in the seventies, I don't think people would have paid as much attention to it. So that might've, that would have happened, you know, that scenario would have happened. Yeah, I think that the, it's used as a, as a way to sort of bring up that discussion about what are you actually doing with your mm. life and, and the pressure of, of, of what's happening in your youth. I do feel as though if Gary, Gary could have been a more interesting, he almost seemed too grown up, which I know is part of the, you know, the joke of the film, but I just feel like there could have been a bit more interesting material in him being a bit more childlike. There's moments where he tips into that, mm. but I didn't think his character brought that much to the to the table I have to be honest having said that if you do want some messy uh infatuation romance <laughs> licorice pizza is now playing at all major and independent cinemas uh look it's now time for our third and final film of the night uh this is a feature de- directorial debut of actor Maggie Gyllenhaal and it's based on Elena Ferrante's novel of the same name I am, of course, talking about The Lost Daughter, and I'm going to play you a short clip now. They really put us through it, huh? I thought you said you were pregnant with your first. I am. What were your daughters like when they were little? Were were they like this willful little creature? I honestly can't remember much, actually. Oh, no, you can't forget anything about your own children. Is that your experience? I just mean, did your daughters give you a hard time when they were little? I just don't remember. You okay? She doesn't remember. I was very tired. So, excuse me. Sorry. Look, don't bother buying another doll. It won't make any difference. You'll find it. 
The Lost Daughter has uh, been described as a psychological drama and I think even in that clip you can hear this strange discomfort in the exchange between those women. Uh, Leader, played by Olivia Coleman, um, is this really fascinating character and I really love that phrase of the willful little creature because children as willful little creatures comes up uh, surfaces throughout this film and one thing I really love is the strangeness of Lida. Um, and she's strange because she actually often says and does exactly what she wants, which uh, that willfulness is in her as well. Um, the film, The Lost Order, also it's like it plays around with time in a really fascinating way. Um, we have Jessie Buckley as well in this film who is so well cast as a young Olivia Coleman. Um, and we see her struggling to, to care for two young daughters. And listeners may recognise Buckley from um, Charlie Kaufman's 2020 film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, um, or Michael Pierce's film Beast, which we actually reviewed on the show back in 2017. Um, the Lost Daughter also features Ed Harris and Peter Skarsgård as leaders' lovers at different times in her life. And the performances in this are just so exceptional. Um, I mentioned before about the, the perfect casting of, of Buckley and, and, and Coleman. Um, but I think why they're so remarkable, and actually all the actors in this are so remarkable, is this film has a real – it requires a real balancing act. There's mm-hmm. actually quite a lot of humour in this rather dark story. Yeah. And I think because it, it, rely, it resides in the fact that it's – what is expected of you in a social moment mm. and and kind of pushing against that slightly. And I think we touch upon that a little bit in the clip I played. Um, I bloody love Olivia Coleman. I remember her from Peep Show days. Um, well, what are, your, what are your thoughts on I, this? I love Olivia Coleman in everything. Yes. But she's always Olivia Coleman. You know, she plays such different roles with just a little gesture in another direction, mm. um, but she's still she's still very much the same person. But you but you can forget, you know, that on other far ends of the spectrum, she's Queen Anne in in the favourite, and she's Sophie from Peep Show. But um, most of her roles, are, I think, they're very you know they're right in the middle there. They're quite similar with just mm. just little variations. I guess what I'm describing is acting, but <laughs> she's very good at that. She is very um, good at that. And, and Jessie got Buckley, some awards. Yeah, oh, she's got a couple of those. Yeah, and Jessie Buckley is perfectly cast, as you said, mm. as a younger version of her because it's not just an impression, you know. She's a different person. Mm. But it's 20 years ago, so of course she's a different person. I think that's important though mm. and I think that this is the point the film is trying to make that Lita is changed mm. by by having children. She's changed in a way that is not positive. It is not a, a kind of glowing representation of motherhood. There is a moment in which Lita says to one of these holiday making makers um, asked about children, she's like, it's a crushing responsibility. Mm. <laughs> and we, we started tonight's show talking about the horror that is in Pablo Lorraine's Spencer and horror returns again here mm. where we have another woman at the centre um, kind of walking around uh, very different to Princess Di, but she's walking around Greece and kind of in some ways indulging in exactly what she wants to do, but her, her peace, her holiday time is is often getting interrupted by this family mm-hmm. um, who 
it takes a, the film goes into a somewhat more sinister territory later in the film, and I don't want to obviously have any spoilers. Um, but it definitely it has a building pressure to it that yep. I think is very similar to horror. Yeah, and, and we like, also have a creepy doll at the center. Oh yeah, you got to have you got to have it. Uh, like Spencer, it wrong foots you constantly mm, as well, and it makes you question yes. the sanity of of of, of the, the lead character while and it just burrows under her skin you know it's mm. perfect did you see you know we're talking about lost daughter but but did you see the kindergarten teacher yes very Mal- similar territory so this is four three years ago maggie gillenhall's uh last major starring role yeah and it's a similar thing it's about parental mm. instinct misfiring mm. and then just unflinchingly staying with a woman as we watch her unravel yeah the kindergarten teacher was one of my favorite films of that year i remember a real quiet one and i don't think a lot of people saw it um i loved that performance i loved that story i thought it was really um radical in the same way mm. that the lost daughter is I, i'm glad that gillenhall has returned to that territory because yeah. there's something really fascinating about seeing a woman act in the way that leader does mm. and yeah you're right will you kind of start to think it's going to go one direction and it doesn't and there's lots of other – there's a layering of, of motherhood throughout this film. Um, in that exchange that I played, you have um, a woman who's about to give birth, a first-time mother. You have um, the wonderful Nina who's played by Dakota Johnson, who I adore as an actor, uh, who, and it's her child who actually goes missing in that first act. But then the daughter herself loses a doll. Mm. So we have this this kind of – Wonderful repetition of mm. of motherhood um, and lost daughters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, and, I, I guess yeah. it's the only story, really. You know, yeah. that, that keeps coming back is you know the relationship with the mother, I, I suppose. But uh, I, I think it's kind of claustrophobic feeling, even though it's very open and sunny. (laughs) Visually. Yeah. I love that this beautiful Greek um, Mm. holiday spot is the site of so much trauma and it Mm. is trauma because she's going back into her past Um, and and threat. Don't you think like there's some very threatening characters that Mm. surface later. Yeah. And it's um, what you were saying about it, uh, about a a woman like Lita, you know, and what it it ties into the kindergarten teacher. I don't think that's a story you could even tell 10 years ago. Mm. You know, like, the it's way controversial, that, yeah, yeah. And the way that, yeah. that that you can now, you know, films are now more open about depicting women in uh, morally ambiguous ways mm. uh, without judgment, you know, uh, is quite something. And I'm just so glad that these stories are coming out, and that I guess probably it's a big a big part of it is more women directing films. Yeah, and I suppose there's also just like a, a wonderful sense of catharsis in seeing this on screen because I think that's. What I find interesting about the film is, you know, it's not to say that everything that Lita does is is great. In fact, there's many moments in which she's actually being quite selfish and yeah, she, she acknowledges she's, it. She's, she's not necessarily the nicest person. No, in fact, she, she's a very complex person. She's yeah, a real person. Yeah, she is. And I think that there's an uncomfortable um, truth at the core of this, this film, which is that um, parenthood is maybe not easy and not for everyone. Mm. And um, the, the notion that you could be a natural mother mm. is, is really very much brought into question. And, and what it does, and this expectation, there's a story within the film in which a character talks about how he has left his children, he's met a new lover, and he hasn't seen his children in, in several years. And 
that in itself, a father to leave a family is mm. maybe not that controversial, but to have a mother leave her children in our society is presented in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what is a point that the film makes by having that little story within the story. Yeah, well, I think I think we're comfortable with you see the story of a father abandoning his children, and you think you know bad. That's he's he's made the wrong decision. He's done an indefensible thing, and then to tease that out and to say, well, here's the, here's the circumstances. And, yeah, it might be the wrong thing to do, but here is the complications behind it. Uh, it's, it's exactly what, you know, a story like this needs to be doing and it's really powerful for it. Mm, I agree. Yeah, I've, this one has stuck with me for a long time and um, it's very much encouraged me to um, go and read Elena Ferrante's um, Short, um, not short story. It's a full it's novel, a novel, full length novel. I've yes. actually read any of her. Haven't you? No, I know. I know it's an oversight. <gasps> oh my gosh! <laughs> I haven't even what read the shock. ones that everybody's read. Yeah. Oh, I cannot recommend them enough. Um, really beautiful storytelling, and actually occupying really similar themes to this film. And I, uh, you know, I saw the trailer and I just instantly was like, I'm, I want to see this. Like, Ferrante, Gyllenhaal, and mm. Coleman. I mean, what a wonderful pairing. Johnson's great as well. Um, and that's not even mentioning the men in this who are wonderful. And actually, it's interesting that they have such. <laughs> play mm. such a second role to this, but Ed Harris and Peter Skarsgård, um, wonderful, wonderful performances. Skarsgård so, yeah. is perfect as this kind Isn't of he? <laughs> smarmy but uh, attractive. Yeah, in a kind probably. of academic yeah. conference way. Yeah, right. Okay, well, you know more about that than me, Flick. But, but yeah, it, I found that I found those scenes um, really fascinating, especially um, the comments made by an older academic about warning um, a young leader against the predatory uh, yeah. advances of another man. Um, really fascinating, and that had, you know, in that way, it also taps into that whole like work-life balance. Um, I'm curious to know how parents will feel watching. The Lost Daughter, um, especially after, what, two years of homeschooling, uh, yeah. whether they might identify it with, well, with it more strongly than they <laughs> Hopefully intended. it's, I mean, hopefully deeply uncomfortable but a sense of catharsis, as you said, because not much art really openly discusses how difficult these things are. Yeah, you know? It's just absolutely. a duty and if you don't, if you're not, uh, you know, instantly, uh, you know, in love with, with parenthood, then you're a you're a bad parent, or yeah, you're, you know, so there's true. something wrong with you. So it's yes. really nice to be able to to open up the discussion about <laughs> uh, well, the the limitations of that. You know, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like tonight tonight's episode we've actually covered a, lot, a few kind of rather sometimes unsavory characters or just slightly um, uh, outsiders, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, or with through. odd relationships with their mothers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> actually oh my god hidden theme i didn't realize was there it's the only story (laughs) very true um all righty well you are listening to primal screen and if you would like to see the lost daughter it's currently streaming on uh netflix um and i think it's still actually playing at some independent uh cinemas so um you can get get a hold of that on tonight's show, we've covered a whole bunch of films that you can currently see either at the cinema or on streaming services. We started the night with Pablo Lorraine's Spencer. Uh, then we went on to P.T. Anderson's Licorice Pizza. And we just finished up the hour with Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, The Lost Daughter. Um, I am very excited um, to be heading back in 
to the cinema for both that screening. But we've also got next week we're going to be doing a spotlight on Europa Europa, which is a film festival which is kicking off next Friday, I believe. Oh, no, this Friday, this Friday. So make sure you check out the schedule for that and, um, yeah, we'll, I'm sure we'll – there's lots more things happening, so I'm excited for that. There was a, one more recommendation you had that we you mentioned off-air, Will. I feel like you should share it with uh, our dear listeners oh, before yeah. we sign off. Yeah. Well, um, you know, cinema is still quite scary. So <laughs> there's a film that came out, I think, a couple of weeks ago on Netflix, two weeks ago, and it's kind of slipped under the radar a little bit. It's a stop-motion animation called The House, uh, and it is quite something it's a strange portmanteau film with three different stories it's very weird and gothic haunted housey and Mm. it's just yeah it's really something i don't want to say too much about it but it's uh it's yeah it's it's really something special i think and it's a shame that i haven't really heard anybody talking about it i noticed that as well when you mentioned it i did have a little search around Mm. and i didn't find it and i think also animation covering that kind of really heavy material is is definitely up my alley and I don't feel like often animated films don't get as much attention just yeah. in general um, and I think Netflix drops something at least one new thing every day you know mm. and a big film every week so I think this is just slipping through the cracks but it's perfect for streaming you know yeah. because it's weird and otherwise wouldn't get much of an audience but here it is open to everybody so. and yeah you make a good point some people you know we're all at different stages and what we're feeling comfortable with so if you're not ready to go back to the cinema just yet um, there's plenty of stuff on the streaming services as well um, anyway it's time for us to wrap up it has been wonderful chatting with you Will thanks for coming on tonight thank you for having me it's lovely as ever Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 